Hi, everyone. Welcome to Better Together and As We podcast. For future reference, As We, as in ASWE, stands for the Alzheimer's Society of Windsor and Essex County. This podcast will feature engaging conversations with guests ranging from community leaders to care partners and persons living with dementia to raise awareness about this disease. You're listening to Better Together and As We Podcast, and this is episode 18. Uh, my name is Cindy Keel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Sheila Horan. Uh, Dr. Horan is a family doctor who mainly practices in Leamington. Uh, Dr. Sheila Horan is involved with many community programs, and although her work life is extremely busy, she still manages to spend quality time with her family and friends. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. All right, so I just want to start off um, a little introduction about yourself, um, your career life, your home life, um, and anything you'd like to share. Well, let's see. Um, I am, uh, I've had an interesting life up to where I am, actually. I've done a whole lot of things, but uh, I'm 61 currently. I've been practicing medicine for 24 years as a family doc, done lots of different things all during my career. Um, before that, I was the assistant chief of a chemistry lab in Hamilton. Uh, I went to St. Clair for that. And before that, I was the store manager of a, of a clothing store in the mall, one plus one, uh, which is no longer around. But uh, yeah, so an interesting career. Um, I'm, I'm divorced many years now, live alone with my three cats. Well, not alone. I got three cats, big house because I have three cats. Yeah. And I live uh, 12 houses down from my mom. So right where I grew up, grew up, I live on the lake, which I absolutely love. It's my favorite thing. Wow. And how many years have you lived at that house for? My house right here. I've been here 16, 17 years. It'll be in November. Yeah. Oh. Wow, that's awesome. So that I awesome. did read a little bit about, you know, your life and things like that. So I want you to just take us um, on a, a journey through your, your, your years of becoming before you became a doctor. So oh, what you had to do God. the ins and outs. <laughs> it's very well, interesting. You know, I kind of lost my way, I think, in my uh, early 20s. I, I was fortunate enough probably to skip uh, a grade in primary school and then um, we didn't have well we had grade 13 when I was in high school but I skipped grade 13 and I went into university like two weeks after my 16th or my 17th birthday which is probably a bit too young and I kind of messed up uh, my first few years of university I always say that I uh, I, I majored in um, football because my um, roommate in university her brother was the captain of the football team so basically oh. the it was go to football and uh I, I failed I got like d's and f's and everything after being like a scholar in school so I lost my way and I went to St. Clair after my second year of university to get into the lab tech program and school just wasn't for me and that's when I um went and worked in the mall at the clothing store and ended up becoming manager there mm -hmm. Then I realized I had a brain, so I probably should do something else. So I went back to St. Clair and graduated from there and got a great job in Hamilton and moved up the ladder. And then when I turned 29, I thought I was already the assistant chief. The chief made very little more money than I did. And uh, I didn't want to go into administration in the hospital. I'm much more clinical. So I decided to go back to school Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to university and got my university degree at Windsor. And I was lucky enough that I had credits transferred from the St. Clair program. 
So I went straight through. And when I was 31, I got accepted to medical school. So that's when I started at age 31. And uh, I was the oldie in the class, but it was still good. And I did great. Medical school was very, very difficult, but I was very focused because that was the only reason I was there. Mm -hmm. There was times where I thought I ruined my life because I spent my whole 30s, um, you know, studying all the time, but well worth it. Well worth it. So uh, then I became a family doc. Initially, didn't really like it. I did two or three years of, of plain family medicine, and then I started branching out. I didn't like to be in my office all day. So I started working at the cancer clinic and then I started uh, assisting in surgery at the hospital. And then eventually I moved directly into the hospital and became the first hospitalist in the region. We have total, that's how hospitals are run mostly now by primary um, care doctors taking care of patients. But I was the first one and I did that for a number of years basically living at the hospital because I was on call from Monday to Friday, 24 hours a day. Wow. It was a, it was a long, busy job, but very good. And that's where I got interested in elderly patients because the average age of my patients was about 85 mm -hmm. and many with dementia. So one year I went uh, out to a family medicine conference and Dr. Linda Lee was um, talking about this memory clinic that she had going, that she was starting up. And I just thought it was so interesting. So I approached her and uh, we ended up training our team. Um, I think we've been doing it 12 years now, uh, running the memory clinic uh, where I work. And I, I'm very lucky to be supported at the family health team with staff for the memory clinic. But then my dad got dementia. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to leave my job at the hospital because I just couldn't do that and take care of my dad. So my sister and I actually moved into my parents' home. Um, we, we spelled off. At first, we did uh, two weeks at a time, and then it was too much. And so then we went one week at a time, and then it was too much because you're up all night. He, yep. he was a client that stayed up all night. And then we did three days at a time for almost two years before I looked at my sister one day and started to cry and said, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Dad went into long-term care and he died relatively quickly after that, which is very sad. But so I experienced that whole dementia thing, um, that whole lifestyle, that whole terrible stuff um, that happens to families uh, personally. So I love Memory Clinic because I have the experience personally my knowledge base is pretty good. And I think we help a lot of people. Yeah. A lot. Of, yeah. Do you, do you think the experience is different when you're, um, you know, a doctor in the hospital with dealing with a patient that has dementia and then versus with your dad? Like, uh, well, I think you certainly understand what it's like and what families are going through and what the patient goes through. You understand the behaviors more, mm -hmm. um, you're more attuned to, two different things um you develop a skill set um yeah i think you understand more I, you have to you've lived it right so right. it becomes more personal right. uh, and i i am overjoyed in memory clinic when i can actually make life better for people for the patient and for the families especially um it's it's a very nice feeling I have to say I'm not well liked by about 25% of the patients because I end up having to report to the Ministry of Transportation if I'm worried about their safety for driving. Mm -hmm. And 
both families and patients take that very hard. Yeah. Um, so that's probably one of the hardest things to do is uh, talk about that. They, you know, they seem to take the diagnosis of dementia quite easily. But what then when I say I, I'm, I'm worried about your ability to drive safely, the whole room changes and, and that's a hard thing to do, but it's the safer thing to do. Yes, yes, I completely agree with you. And understandably, they are, you know, upset about that factor because driving is, you know, the, the one thing that gets them from A to B yeah. and it's something they've been doing most of their life. So that's right. Yeah. So, so your, your journey, um, one thing I want to actually bring back is, um, do you think that, and this is just an off topic question, uh, do you think that coming out of high school is very young for people to really know what they want to do? I absolutely do. And they took away grade 13. I, I was astounded because I know how I was like, you don't really have, some students have a direction, but a lot of them don't. And um, school's very different now, of course, than when I was in school. But I, I like that. I like when the students take the gap year and travel or do something because I going into university right away I, I don't really know if they really understand even I don't know I'm not there but that would be my impression I knew I was too young when I mm -hmm. went um and, and I was a smart girl um and I just you know just <laughs> went off the wings when I was there um you know the different change of lifestyle and stuff but I don't know yeah I think it's I think it's yeah Oh, no, I completely agree. I think grade 13 should come back. And um, I'm all for, you know, students taking that year off just to really think about what they want to do because it costs money. Um, it's a lot of work and time and energy. And, um, you know, I definitely experienced <laughs> somewhat of what you experienced. So I know how it is. And I completely agree. That, though, I, I'm a big encourager for, I mean, this is my third career. And they've all been great careers. Um, so I'm a big, I feel bad for people who think in their 20s that they're stuck. And I use myself as an example saying, hey, I didn't go to med school till I was 31. Yeah. I remember my father going, oh my God, you're not even going to have time to practice. Well, it's been 24 years already. So it's been a good career mm -hmm. um, starting at age 31. So I always encourage people to change. If you don't like what you're doing, if it's not fulfilling you, you can do something else. There's no rule that says you have to stay that way. I gave up everything. I came out at age 38, $122,000 in debt with nothing. And, you know, basically started over. Luckily, it's a great job. So I could, I could do well, but um, you, you don't have to be confined to one career for sure. Mm -hmm. um, what was the most fulfilling part about doing your job or doing your job now, do you find? Oh, helping people. You know, just making people better, making people feel better. Um, one of my favorite things to treat actually uh, is dementia, or sorry, depression. Dementia too, but depression because uh, you see people that are just so very sad or their anxiety is so bad. And then with a little bit of work and medication and talking, you know, in a few months or hopefully sooner than that, I can see them smile again. I absolutely love that. I love when I open my door and I know I'm going to see someone who's been very down and they have a smile on their face when I walk in. To me, that's, you know, because they're awesome. enjoying life, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's amazing. So do you think the depression was more heightened during COVID? Um, 
you know, depression has been a big prominent thing in family medicine anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say the biggest effect I saw on COVID, I don't have that many school age kids that came in during COVID. I know that they struggled. I did have a few uh, adolescents, well, not even adolescents, between about the age of nine and 11 that had uh, bad depression that was new. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, there, but uh, elderly people, I think, took a real, real hit during COVID because of the isolation. A lot of them, they lost their social lives. They couldn't go to the half century club. They couldn't go out for coffee with their friends. They didn't see their friends. And that's really bad for an elder person. Um, and I think that group of people in my mind suffered the most. I well, and I know the kids did too. I know the kids did. I just don't have that much experience with what the kids went through. I don't have children of my own. Mm -hmm. um, all my friends have grandkids that are coping pretty well. So I don't have that personal experience, uh, but I do understand the children had a really hard time too. Yeah. And it's why it's been two years and we're still dealing with COVID to this point. We so. are dealing we are dealing with oh, so we are huge right now. It's huge out there. And unfortunately, all the messages are that it's over. You know, we're taking off all of the guards. And luckily, most of us are vaccinated, so we can deal with it. But believe me, it's out there. Um, and some people get really, really sick. The, the notion that it's just a viral illness it is, but people get really sick. Unexpected people get really, really sick. So it's, it's, um, it, it still worries me very, very much COVID and mm -hmm. what we're coming into now. And we're expecting influenza to hit at the same time this year. So we're buckling down. Um, I did urgent care clinic on Saturday. I saw 42 people and about, I'd say 80% of those were coughs and colds and yeah. rarely one person thought that it could be COVID. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, I don't know how you don't know it's COVID because I don't know that it's COVID. Yeah. Probably is. And it's good to know so that you can protect anybody around you. But it, I'm a little bit worried about the messaging that's out there right now that, you know, yes, we have to learn to live with COVID, but people still have to be careful. Right. Um, yeah. And it's the lingering after facts of, of COVID. Very too, much. That, um, Very much. I'm hearing about that a lot. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, it's it's a it's a difficult a little bugger of a virus. Sorry for swearing, but honestly, no. I believe what that little virus has been to the whole world. So I read in your bio um, that you were involved with the Coast Guard during COVID. How did that yeah. come about? Well, well, not during COVID. Well, partially, but I would I'm I was a volunteer um, Coast Guard auxiliary. So I'm a boater. I have my own boat. I grew up on boats with my dad. So mm -hmm. I have my own 26 foot that I love. I never get out on it enough. But um, and I live near Colchester. So it's docked in Colchester. And when I brought my boat there, there was this really cool rescue boat across the way. And I thought, I wonder what they do. And so I was taking um, my um, radio licensing course, boaters license, the mariners course. And there was a guy there that said, yeah, I work on the Coast Guard Auxiliary Boat in Colchester. And I said, I want to do that. <laughs> so I did. I applied and um, I was with them. Feels like forever. I really miss them. Um, the crew, I think I was out on the water at least three or four seasons. It's a lot of training. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to go on a lot of rescue calls, only two or three, just 
nature of my work and um but they work so hard that crew they train so hard they've saved oh at least 18 lives on the lake i mean some miraculous saves um it's a wonderful group of of people they're hard workers lovely they become some of my best friends that crew and i do really miss it it's just the time devotion that i i didn't have during covid because at the beginning of COVID, I had, I don't know, I was Coast Guard Auxiliary. I was the lead physician for my family health team that is 30,000 people. I work for the government. Um, actually, uh, my contract with them ends this week. I've been the regional primary care lead for a number of years. Uh, plus, I'm an investigating coroner. So I had all those jobs going. Plus, I have a family doc. Yes, um, I had all those jobs going at one time. And then when COVID hit, um, my lead position became a lot because I had to figure out how we're going to run our clinic and what's going to happen. And then my primary care regional lead position became huge because we were directing how to do everything. And there's so much committee work. Mm-hmm. So I had to start giving up things. So I gave up my volunteer job first. And then um, what came next? Eventually, I gave up my lead job, and um, I think you said the board. You were on the board for the Alzheimer's. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah, and I had to give that up too. I forgot about that. I had to just give that up. That was terrible. Karen was not happy with me, I know, but I just couldn't get to the meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, I gave up. I actually took the leave of absence in April of this year for my coroner work as well, because I just couldn't keep up with family medicine and uh, my primary care lead job. Mm-hmm. So now that job is gonna be ending um, the end of this month. So I'm hoping to go back to coroner work in the spring. But Wow, yeah. I literally, I was reading it. I'm like, how <laughs> do you fit all of this into your well, day, I, your I schedule? Did. I did, I did before, before COVID, but with COVID, no, it kind of destroyed things. And family medicine is a an incredibly busy thing right now for all of us. We're all extremely tired. Um, you'll hear on the news coming relatively soon, even today, I heard something. Family doctors are pretty burnt out right now. We're tired and there's a lot of early retirees and not too many young ones coming into family practice because the workload is so high. Mm-hmm. So we're coming into a bit of a crisis in family medicine, um, which is a, is pretty worrisome, actually. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I'm trying to just take a little bit of time <laughs> right now, but I do want to go back to my corner work, too. Yeah. And I love the operating room, too. That's my that's one of my favorite places to be is in, is assisting in the operating room. So, what kind of operations are you assisting with? Like everything? My favorite. Yeah, well, uh, my my uh, my girlfriend of mine is a general surgeon in, in Leamington, so I love to help her. And uh, my favorite thing to do, she'll tell you, she'll laugh is bowels, and the uglier the better. Mm-hmm. I love colon resections and stuff like that. That's my favorite. But I'll do I'll help her with anything. She she does most of our breast cancers out here too, so I like to help her with that. And she does um, cholecystectomies, so gallbladders and hernias and everything a general surgeon does. I love mm-hmm. to help her. Wow. Yeah. I find oh it really God. relaxing. Actually, the operating room is relaxing for me. So, yeah. 
<laughs> that is really cool because I don't uh, all of that stuff just um gives me the worries like I don't know if how I would well, do. You go to medical school you know yeah. once you do the medical school thing you're okay you can do pretty much everything oh that's awesome um what are the different types of challenges you faced over the years as a family doctor oh well I have to say it's the most challenging time right now um because of the COVID backups um, we can't get diagnostic imaging very well, like in, in a timely fashion. I mean, we can get it. And, and always, if there's an emergency, we have access. Always. If I called and said it's an emergency, it will get done. It'll get done quickly. Mm -hmm. But in general, something that we could get within two weeks now is taking six weeks or um, longer, two months sometimes. An MRI is, you know, four or five months to get. CAT scans, we used to be able to get within a couple of days. Now it's three or four weeks out. So um, try to get diagnostic things done for your patients so that you can get on with whatever needs to be done for them is challenging. Also, of course, there's no operating room time. So, because uh, the surgical backlog is huge, two years behind. Um, so that's a terrible thing. So someone who's got a hernia per se that is not, uh, an urgent thing is waiting forever and people get impatient. I think probably one of the biggest challenging things right now is patients have lists of problems and you can't deal with a list of problems and appointments and they get frustrated because they have to come back. But literally my head can't do five things in an appointment. I'm going to forget something, you know? Mm -hmm. So right now is the, definitely the most challenging time ever. And that's trying to get your patients taken care of, trying to access specialists, for instance. Um, a lot of people are taking patients because the wait list is too long. To see a neurosurgeon, the wait list is one to two years. Oh. And I can understand how patients are frustrated. Um, and, and so their frustration makes, makes it difficult for us too to feel that we feel that frustration ourselves. Um, so definitely that's the most challenging thing. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest challenge other than that is mental health and addictions. And um, as a coroner, you know, the last call that I did on a weekend, I think I had four overdoses, all very sad. Everybody, you know, from affluent homes, beautiful homes, um, families that have been trying to access care for their loved ones with, with um, addiction problems and mental health problems. It's so sad to see. Um, I, I, there's a crisis. There's definitely a crisis with uh, mental health and addictions right now. And, and I know we're working on it. We're doing, they are working on things, but it's just so very sad to see as a coroner, these lives that are just cut down at age 22 or 31 or, or 50 or whatever age, people that you would never think were addicted to drugs. And it's like, yeah, this is what it is. And, and it's hard for families to understand. So I think that's our biggest challenge right now. Um, is mental health and addictions. And I know we're really working on it in our region, which is great, but there's a lot of work to do. A lot so of work much, do. yeah, so much. Yeah. Wow. Just even talking to you about that, like a lot of people wouldn't know what's going on. Terrible, it is, it's terrible. Uh, somebody once said to me, it's, it's funny how you can have an elderly person, and this has nothing to do with being elderly, it's just an example, um, who's lived a really good life and 
comes into the emergency room with chest pain and they get gold star Cadillac care. You know, they see the cardiologist, they get their angiogram done, they get their stenter, they get their bypass. Now there's some wait time right now, but they do. Mm-hmm. But someone young with mental health issues who comes in addicted and, and wants to commit suicide or talks about it or asks for help, they're sent back out on the street and said, okay, we'll get to you. And, the, and there's nothing available for them for a long time. And this is a young person's life that we, that we should really be embracing and trying to help, you know, but it's difficult. It's, it's a difficult thing. It's not an easy fix, like having an angiogram and a stent and go home. It's a, it's a, a big project to try to help these people. And it's sad. It's just very sad. Mm-hmm. And lots of people that need to be involved too, right? With, with helping that person. Yeah, they need a team. It's not one person. It's a mm-hmm. team. Definitely need a team. Yeah. And I yeah. believe that that there may be a shortage in that too, right? Like social oh, yeah, workers absolutely. and psychiatrists, yeah. all that. Home home care right now. Uh, PSWs. We hear, um, you know, you hear the shortage of PSWs. And, and there truly is we'd love to keep people in the house it's it's more it, the patients like it better to be in their own house it's a little di- difficult on families though they need help they need that PSW work in the home and the nursing support in the home mm-hmm. and there aren't enough they're not well paid um, they don't get paid for mileage they don't get a car they have to use their own vehicle drive to where they're going to work and, and it's a difficult job it's, it's they're going into all sorts of homes so mm-hmm. I commend the PSWs yeah um I don't know. There's so much to fix. It's exhausting thinking about it. And I always want to fix everything. (laughs) Always like, Oh, I got to do that. I got to fix that. And you can't really. So I I try to concentrate on the dementia because I I like to do that. And I see good progress with patients. Um, Even, even as they're advancing down the road, you can still make their life really wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I, and help families deal with things and the mental health stuff though. Like I say, the easy depressions are the ones that I love to treat because they're a win for sure. Um, but the addictions are very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And you've seen all of it. Yeah, all family doctors see all of it. I probably, the coroners, um, we probably see a little bit more of what happens out there. A lot of bad stuff happens because you're a coroner and that's, you deal with death all the time um, in not such great circumstances. It's never, it's never a good circumstance unless it's a nice natural death at home. But um, yeah, we see a lot. We see all doctors see a lot. Emergency room doctors see a lot. Nurses see a lot. Um, but that's the nature of what we do. Mm-hmm. So what are some things that you are doing for yourself to help, you know, deal with um, all the things that you're Well, you know, seeing? people might've heard this story on the radio a couple of years ago, but, uh, I thought I was handling COVID pretty well um, at the beginning. So COVID hit like in March, we were working from home all the time. We went into the office one, once every 10 days. We always had a doctor in the office for emergencies. If you're at home on the phone and you had someone that had to be seen, you could send them into the office and someone would see them, one of our colleagues. But I thought I was handling all those things well. And then I started getting strange headaches. And uh, I've never even had a patient tell me about a headache like this before. So I ordered a blood pressure meter off Amazon. It came the next day and my blood pressure was like a hundred and no, two, 203 on 128, Mm -hmm. which is stroke territory blood pressure, especially if you're symptomatic. 
So I immediately called um, one of my colleagues and said, can you send me in something? I'm going to drive right now to the pharmacy so that I can get myself on something. And so then I did all the things that I tell my patients to do. I lost some weight. I lost like 80 pounds over COVID. I reduced my alcohol intake. I cut down my salt and I started walking. And that's how I lost the 80 pounds. I don't take any medication for blood pressure anymore, but I walk. I'm a walker. So when I'm home, if I don't have to get to the office in the morning, I'll do 10 kilometers in the morning. Uh, yeah. And other days when I have to get to the office, I just do five. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my headspace. I listen to music. I listen to podcasts. I listen to books. I listen to the news. I'm always calling into AM 800 with some advice about something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, so I enjoy walking. I enjoy my boat very, very much, but I just never get there very often. Um, and I live on a lake and that's a joy in itself. I have a nice dock that sits out over the water and it's my favorite place to go after work. So, so 10 kilometers, just, just to gauge off that, how many hours, or is that, how many hours is that about? It takes me an hour 48. An hour yeah. 48. Okay. Yeah. An hour, and I'm all, it's almost exactly the same time every day. Yeah. An hour 48. Yeah. Wow, that's I have, amazing. I have my route and everybody knows me now because it's going to be two years on November 8th that I've been walking the same route every day. I never, I rarely change through the same route at all different times of the day. But um, so I've met so many people, so many neighbors that I didn't know before. And um, I stop and talk. So sometimes if I'm stopping and talking, it might be two hours before I'm home. But um, if I just do the straight walk, it's an hour 48. And I get to see the eagles and the bunnies. And some people have ducks and geese. And I, I watch them. And yeah, it's nice. I like it. No, that I always tell people, I'm like, just getting out to walk. Uh, doesn't yeah. even have to be an hour 48 10 kilometers oh. just getting out to walk for five ten yep. minutes is really really good for your your well-being it's, it's the best and uh, people my patients who haven't seen me in a long time when they come in now and they see that I've lost the weight they say how did you do that I said I walk I actually eat pretty much whatever I want to eat because I get the exercise now which is great mm-hmm. um, and I eat pretty healthy anyway but I just ate too much before well actually I didn't eat that healthy before <laughs> I eat really healthy now. <laughs> that I'll do. I do now. I get those home delivery things, you know, like HelloFresh. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I do HelloFresh and um, make good food. And um, what's the other one? Chef's plate. I rotate them all. Yeah. And I never cooked before. And so I started this and now I was like, oh my God, this is so good. I'm like, as long as I've got the recipe and I've got all the ingredients, I can do it. So that's what I do now. Yeah, and, it, and it saves you grocery shopping so you can it do ever. the 10 kilometer walk if you yeah. want to it does yeah 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 I even have people over for dinner now I never would have done that before oh, yeah that's awesome <laughs> so what are a few things that you've learned along the way so that maybe somebody that is trying to get into family medicine um, um can have some pointers so I think, I don't know what they're looking for in candidates anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that when I was um, getting in, of course, you have to have the marks in school. Your your marks have to be fairly good. Um, And honestly, a lot of people going in already have a master's degree in university or um, like it's, I'm amazed at some of the things that people have when they go into med school. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be in sciences either. I think I've had friends that are music majors that went into medical school and did just great. So, but they also like, um, 
kind of well-rounded, you need to do some kind of volunteer work to show your devotion to the community. Um, just an enthusiasm, I think. Mm -hmm. Just enthusiasm for medicine and a good idea of why you think you actually want to be a doctor. Um, it's a good profession, but it's a hard profession. It's a hard, hard profession. It's a lot of hours and a lot of work. It, you know, work doesn't end at the end of medical school. Your work is only starting. Um, and it, everybody's tired now with COVID. You know, we're all, COVID really, really shifted. The last two years, out of my 24 years, these last two years have been more exhausting than any of them. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, it's just a passion. I often find that families, you know, if mom and dad are doctors, often the kids become doctors. That wasn't in my case, I'm the only one, but um, being brought up in that kind of atmosphere, I think encourages that kind of atmosphere as well. Um, and just to reach out to experience, they, they do some great summer camps um, for kids in high school um, to experience what it might be like to become a doctor, things that you do. And I know that um, Erie Shores Healthcare, the Leamington Hospital often has that. I don't think they have with COVID for the last two years, but they often will run a camp like that. Um, and that's a great way for, um, for the uh, high school kids to experience what it might be like. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, we can't really bring a lot of students into the office because of confidentiality stuff. Um, but we do bring in the medical students for sure when they come in. We love to train them too. Perfect. So, yeah. So from your point of view, why is an important uh, what why is it so important to have a support system? Oh gosh, everybody needs a support system of all kinds. I mean, I think emotional support out of everything is the biggest, most important. Because if you have the emotional support from friends and family, you mm -hmm. can pretty much handle anything. If you're alone trying to deal with things. That's a really difficult thing to do. The isolation is terrible. So emotional support from your friends and families. I have tons of friends. I'm very, very lucky, really lucky to have such good friends. And I have a great family too. Um, so for me, and I have my cats. <laughs> They're my emotional support, my cats actually. But anyway, um, yeah, emotional support I think is number one. And then of course, for, for people with... Um, physical illness, they, they need the physical support too. I mean, they need the home care or whatever, or the doctor support or friends, mm -hmm. parents, family support. Um, I don't know. That's what I would say, I guess. Just Yeah. So the name of our podcast is Better Together. Uh, what does that mean to you? Oh, we're emotional support. Yeah. Communication, go. communication, just be open and talk. Be open Perfect. and talk. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Horn, for taking the time out of your day to uh, do this podcast with me. I would love for us to finish this podcast with some fire rapid questions. These five questions are all random and um, it'll allow our audience to get to know a little bit more about you. Uh, there's no wrong answer. Um, are you ready? Go for it. All right. If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with that extra time? Oh, Garden and read. Garden and read. <laughs> if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Pizza. Pizza. <laughs> what kind of toppings? Oh, any, I don't like anchovies and I don't like pineapple. But uh, and, yeah, pretty much anything else though is great. All right. I'm, a, I'm a, like a chicken feta cheese 
kind of person on my pizza. And I love creme fraiche pizza. You don't get it here very often, but it's like a white base on the bottom. Oh, yes. That's my favorite. I've had that at Oven 360, I think it is. Yeah, creme fraiche is awesome. Yeah. What would your perfect Sunday look like? Sleeping in, uh, floating on the lake on my boat or sitting at the lake. Um, that's the two most important things. <laughs> a really good deal, probably at a winery because I live mm -hmm. right among all the wineries. I love them. Um, visiting with friends, my neighbors. I got some great neighbors, my family, my mom. Just relaxing. No work. That mm -hmm. would make a perfect day. No work. No work. <laughs> This, yeah, is, no this is an off-topic question, but do you prefer red or white wine? <laughs> you know, I was a white wine person for years and years, but now I like both. both I like okay. both, but I'm a bit particular over the kind that I like, but I like both red and white. All right. What could you give a 40-minute presentation on with absolutely no preparation? Uh, dementia in the memory clinic, for sure. Um, that'd probably be it, I guess. Mm -hmm. what's the best piece of advice someone has ever given you oh <laughs> um you know it wasn't advice but there's one line that I remember um from uh my doctor actually when I was in medical school I had a doctor in Kingston and um I was always a very hard worker and um I myself suffered with depression for most of my life. And in medical school, she said to me to try to maintain balance because medicine will eat you up and spit you out. And that's exactly what it's like. So I think that trying to keep myself balanced, I've never been very successful at it. I've always overworked and never really taken enough family time. But I think that advice kind of stops me sometimes and says, remember what she said, remember you gotta slow down. You remember you gotta, you can't work. You can't work all the time. My dad always said, you can't save the world. Mm -hmm. you can't save the word shell. My parents call me Shelly. You can't save the word shell. You know, you like relax and have a, have a good time. So I think those that reminder all the time that it's okay to spend a Sunday and not work. You know, I have to actually give that to myself as a gift. So mm -hmm. that would be it, I think. And, and, and if I had to give advice to somebody else, enjoy your life because it's really short. Before you know it, you're 61. Before you know it, you're 81. Before you know it, you're 91. Like, mm -hmm. honestly, just enjoy your life and, and have a good work-life balance. That, that'd be my best advice to anybody. Wow, that's amazing. And I wanted to touch point, you are the uh, Others Before Self Award recipient for 2022. Um, I can't even believe that. I don't even know how that happened. It's embarrassing. What? <laughs> I know why it happened. Look at everything we just talked about throughout this whole podcast. Honestly, you're an amazing, amazing oh. person. Just from reading everything about your, your bio and just having uh, conversations about you with my colleagues, like you are an absolutely amazing person. Um, and I know why you are a recipient for this award. Thank you, Thank you so much. That's tonight. I'm really really nervous and I feel bad that I'm not attending the dinner but I'm COVID fear I have COVID fear and my my mom who's 93 is coming because she wants to see that so no. I just want her exposed so I'm just gonna grab and run unfortunately no that's okay I'm, I'm excited your mom's you're bringing your mom with you yeah my yeah mom. this is awesome yeah, yeah.
No, I'm so excited for you to receive this award. Um, yeah, you've been doing amazing things throughout your career. Um, the list just goes on and on. <laughs> That's because I get impatient and bored and I always have to do something new. <laughs> so thank you so much, Dr. Sheila Horn. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Um, I hope our listeners have um, gotten a chance to know you a little bit better and what you do for our community. Um, hey, listeners, my call to action for all of you. How can you help? Educate yourself and encourage others to do the same. Refer your circle of friends and family to our services. Support our events and fundraising campaigns and become a dementia-friendly community. Let's keep talking about dementia. Listen to new episodes on the last Friday of every month on our YouTube channel, Alzheimer Windsor. Uh, help for today, hope for tomorrow, and remember, we are better together. Thank you so much. Bye.